РИА НОВОСТИ Подкасты Вирусы продолжают развиваться Мы Все Все Мы Мы Все Умрем Мы все умрем. Но это не точно. Hello and welcome to the podcast We're all going to die but not for sure. Here we try to scientifically analyze what's awaiting the earth and humankind in the foreseeable future. My name is Igor Krivitsky. My co-host for today is my good friend Vadim Slivinsky, an interpreter and an intercultural communications specialist. Hi. And our guest for today is Ian McDonald, the famous British science fiction novelist, a master of the cyberpunk genre, the winner of Hugo, Locus, Philip Dick and BSFA awards. Mr. McDonald, today we'd like to discuss with you how close our reality and everyday life are to those of cyberpunk. The three main pillars of cyberpunk are, if I'm not mistaken, uh, high-tech plus low-life, the rise and power of corporations, yeah, and the, well, uh, the total globalization. The total globalization. Total globalization. Internationalization. And, uh, well, erasure of uh, smaller cultures. And all of these trends can be seen, well, on the global scale today. So what do you think? How close are we actually to the, well, to the cliche cyberpunk? <laughs> yeah, it's, I think we always, we always end up living in the future before we actually know that it's arrived. And I think we've, got, we've, we've been living in a, a kind of cyberpunk future for quite a long time. Probably, probably actually since the genre kind of evolved in the 1980s, it just didn't evolve quite the way that literature thought it would evolve. The killer app, you know, isn't jacking a computer into the back of your head and filling up your cranium with kind of glowing, glowing green icons. It's social media and sharing pictures of cats. And that's the kind of thing I kind of like about it, though, in that all the classic cyberpunk things are there. Yes, we have massive tech companies with unlimited power, almost unlimited power, who don't really need really quite know what to do with it. Um, yeah, uh, wealth isn't being shared the way it was. It's an increasingly unequal society, and you have stratospheric amounts of wealth And everyone else basically is the poor are getting poorer and the rich are getting richer. We have that everywhere at the same time. Um, and we used to live in a more globalized world, and that's kind of changed partly. And I think that Cyberpunk never quite saw it. It changed partly because of the technology itself. That it made that what nobody kind of really saw was that it makes everyone a tribe of their own, and and instead of looking outwards, people turn inwards and look to their own groups. We live in a series of bubbles, kind of echo chambers, where only our opinions or the opinions opinions we approve of for people we approve of are heard. And this works for left, and it works for right, and it works for everything. It's all over the world. It's just a kind of natural kind of uh, human thing that that the literature didn't really. We'll be touching all those topics, and it's uh, it's really what we we'll want to hear from you more, both from the terms of echo chambers and fractured cultures and those layering of bubbles and the politics in it. But uh, the main thing here is uh, cyberpunk used to be punk. It used to be a sort of an alternative genre. I remember back in uh, 1997, there were those books in Russia. They were printed like literal pulp fiction on you the yellow paper. You can't remember 1997 because you were how old? One year old, two year old? A couple of months. A couple of months old, yeah. But still, I can remember those books, though. They were printed in 1990s, early 
2000s. And there was like Neuromancer, all those uh, first works of Gibson coming into Russia. And now... It's more well, pop than punk. Yeah, it's more pop. It's more cyber pop than cyberpunk. <laughs> and how, how do you think? Uh, why is it so? And uh, how come that we're literally consuming the cyberpunk without getting the narrative about consumerism and about echo chambers? We're looking at it, but we're like not really getting it. But Because it never really was punk to begin with. I grew up in... I was 16 in 1976. Yeah, I'm old. I was 16 in 1976, which was the first great summer of punk in Ireland and the UK, 1976-1977. And there had been nothing like it before musically. It was, everything was possible, everything was turning its head, everything was revolutionary. And it went over to America and it changed into something different. And the American idea of punk, which is what informed cyberpunk, never really had that kind of punk ethos, you know, the, the, the kind of alternative. It was very, very individualized, the, the way that kind of a lot of American culture is. It was all about, you know, the lone rebel against the world, whereas punk was much more, we are the punks. It's a group thing. It's an identity, and it's kind of a culture that you live in, a kind of counterculture. When cyberpunk arrived, it got a lot of it right, but it didn't get that kind of sense of, we are a tribe, you know, we you know, we are a new nation, you know, and we kind of are the future. Of course, it never, it, it didn't turn out that way. But the last thing I, 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 in popular culture that really had that kind of feel to it was kind of rave culture in, in about the late 80s, early 90s. It had that same feeling of there is another, there is another way to live for, for people to live rather than just being a rebel and getting off my head on, on ease. Um, So, from, I mean, from, from my point of view, the, the thing that Cyberpunk didn't get right was it, it made it very individualized rather than rather than countercultural, which was what it was. And that may be why uh, we're kind of consuming it in different ways now, because it never really was punk to begin with. Vadim actually thought of a, a question which I didn't uh, think of, but I liked it really much, uh, about you know, the post-cyberpunk genre. Yeah, because you often get uh, classified as a post-cyberpunk writer. And in fact, it's pretty hard to really understand uh, the post in it. So if you could like elaborate, if you know what they are talking about. To my mind, post-cyberpunk means not like the times after cyberpunk, because after cyberpunk is post post-apocalyptic. But yeah, like post-cyberpunk is about cyberpunk uh, happening not in the future, like not in the far future, not being so sci-fi, but in the near future. The kind of stuff I write is I'm I mean I've I've written a lot of stuff you know I've done parallel world stuff I've done I've, I've done a magic realism novel set on Mars uh, but but what what I'm kind of interested in for me I like to be able to get to my future from here I like to say well here I am sitting in 2020 you know uh, you know on a kind of a, on a rainy afternoon in the mid, in the middle of a global pandemic what steps go from me here right now to this future I'm imagining that's why I've tended in kind of the big books like River of Gods and the Dervish House in Brazil to set them in the near future so I can get from where this world is now to you know to where this fictional world is in a few years time I'm not about writing prophecy because because that's not science fiction's job we don't predict the future we just show futures we show ways to be you know other 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 ways of living in fact in brazil no it's not brazil so it actually was in luna uh, the same thing i, I want to know how you know how to get to the, er the early 22nd century and connect to the here and now so that's kind of what interests me it's um i like to take a kind of a big science fiction uh there's like a couple of schools of, of looking at science fiction there's the classic <laughs> what i call the classic and the epic um the classic takes one change 
and then explores it. Um, it's kind of the, um, there's a British writer called Adam Roberts is the master of this. He, he takes one idea and then and then explores the heck out of it. There's, there's one where basically animals have been, been implanted with chips and, and can speak. And he just takes the idea of talking animals and <laughs> runs with it. I tend towards the epic in that I don't see there being one change in the future. I see everything changes because I think that's the way that the world we live in now is. Everything is changing all at the same time. It's technology advancing. There's Climate change is advancing. There is there is political change, and we have a global pandemic. Everything is changing at once, and that's the kind of interests me more. Yeah, kind of kind of epic science fiction on the on the widescreen. Uh, that probably hasn't answered your question, but it, it, it's, it's it's kind of the, the best way I can explain how I do what I do. This podcast was created in partnership with the Gig Picnic Russian Science and Tech Fest. First things first, let's talk about technologies changing rapidly and people's attitude to technologies changing too rapidly, I guess. But, you know, well, when you're trying to research, let's say, let's call it a research, uh, you're trying to research uh, what's, hap- what's new happening and what's going to happen to well, technologies and people. However, Vadim actually noticed some things that are like a recursive, like a, a callback from the past. For example, ne- how do you pronounce it? Neoludism? Neoludism. As well as, well, digital detox and downshifting. Uh, well, what I was talking about is like people disgracing technologies and trying to, well, get as far away from them as they can, although the technologies are actually supposed to make their lives better. So... Why is it happening, and what are the pros and cons, well, at your at your opinion, of people disliking and disgracing the tech? <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's not the tech that they don't like. It's it's that a lot of uh, the killer app has been social media, and that kind of just proves that Jean-Paul Sartre was right. You know, that hell is other people, and I think a lot of it. It's not a digital detox; it's an other people detox from having to get the details of other people's lives. You know, finding out what somebody's doing, telling someone something you're doing. That whole thing is becomes absolutely non-stop. So, I mean, I mean, you can have a digital detox and watch something on Netflix. You're still consuming technology. You just do. You're just not engaging with people so i think maybe a lot of it is um is social detox or over socialization detox trying kind of thinking for about you know what's what what's the kind of evolving culture behind the likes of tiktok you know which has been the big app hit of the past year um instagram the likes of that and i think deep down they're validating mechanisms that were evolving into a culture where everything we do must be validated by someone else And if somebody else does something, if we don't validate it for them, then it's not valid. And I and I just think that that it's that constant pressure to validate yourself to other people and be and 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 to validate them. Maybe the you know maybe the thing that's kind of you know that exhausts people, that drains them. Hasn't it always been like that all the time? Like, well, maybe not to such a scale. But nevertheless, that's uh, that's part of our human nature, isn't it? It's, yeah, but it's but we can just get so much more of it. I mean, in, I mean, I mean, Instagram is a crack cocaine of, of validation. You, 
Uh, you can get thousands of people validating the way you look, how your holiday looks, how your dinner looks, all that. You know, I, I suppose just telling a friend, well I, well, I had a lovely dinner and it was really nice and a really nice restaurant. Oh, that, that's that's very good. I like that place. You can get it instantly and you get it from thousands of people at the same time going, yep, lovely dinner. Um, we haven't invented anything new. It's, as you say, it's always been a part of, you know, a, a part of the human psyche, but, but we're, we're just feeding it now and it's and, and it, it's just on this massive sugar rush. Yeah, it's actually it kind of reminds me of the one episode of Black Mirror. Uh, I don't know your attitude towards the series, but there was a, I believe in the third series, there was an episode called Nosedive where everybody was constantly rating everybody else. And then there's a girl who's 4.6 and she needs to be 4.8 to get a discount and so on and so forth. And she, she tries, she busts herself and, and then she ends up being a one. <laughs> well, that's it. It's, it's like, uh, it's, it's like the Chinese social credit system is exactly like that. You know, everyone's being rated all the time and you can't stay in nice hotels or hire nice cars. You're being validated or invalidated by the state in this case. It's a, it's a pernicious thing. I'm a big fan of Black Mirror, actually. Uh, there's this argument, and it's often been made, that technologies, and you've said it yourself, that they don't really change anything. They didn't inv- We didn't invent anything new. We just took it to a larger scale. But in your opinion... Is it is it human nature or is there something behind those technologies we should fear and we should perhaps learn to interact with? For instance, like we try to now when we're you know preparing our children, when we're sending them to school, we don't teach them to fight bullies. We teach them to fight bullies and cyber bullies. Yeah. We yeah. teach them not only the basic human hygiene, but also the digital hygiene. At least I think we should. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe there's something for all of us to to be unraveled about ourselves as a species, that it was always within us, but bringing it to a much larger scale, speeding it up, you can really hear it. Yeah, it's these technologies are amplifiers in a sense. Um, they um, they take some, and, and, and it's nearly always the bad, <laughs> nasty, mean and vile parts of, you of, of, of human nature and amplify them big time. Um, I think we haven't quite worked out how to deal with our technology and and, 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 I th- and I think that's an education thing. And it's like old-fashioned critical thinking. You know, I automatically discount any story I see on Facebook because it's on Facebook. But, but, it, but it's like, how do we rate stuff we, stuff we get through social media and online? What criteria do we have for judging whether a thing is true? What credence do we give to this person am i yes i mean am i in danger of jumping into a dog pile here which which twitter is notorious for you know is this a witch hunt you know we're going to burn the witch at the end of it uh, i think education needs to at a very early age install or instill these uh, teach these critical ways of thinking about how we deal with the massive feedback loops of social media you know how to ask questions how to step back from the because it's, it's all too easy to you know somebody says something you just send uh without calling it back you know how to distance ourselves from it so we can get so we can get the fun and we can get and we can get the the value out of it but without necessarily the whole thing going into these huge feedback loops um our education just hasn't caught up to the technology yet now i'd like to bring up a little bit of positive vibe to outweigh what we've just talked about because yeah uh, because well you know technologies and the internet didn't only bring us cyber bullying and cyber terrorism for example but also like digital art and the whole prosumerism thing where people who consume are can also produce yeah and do it like 
on their own without uh, or, or like with crowdfunding. So what I'm trying to say is it all has also brought um, it also has a bright side, you know, all this thing because people can be more creative and well spread their creativeness and share it more easily than they used to without those technologies. And by the way, this reminds me, this remind brings me to my next question about the, you know, new producing consumering realities, which are we have services instead of products now. We usually we prefer to rent instead of own, both digitally and like in the meat world. How this is not something that used to be. This is something new to our society. Well, as the way I see it, being more short term, for example, yeah, short and short sighted, maybe even. Does that happen? Well, due to technologies, or are the technologies only an amplifier as well here? Short term rental of of physical assets. Not physical assets only, but you know, like Netflix streaming instead of going to cinema, for example. Yeah. Um- my problem with Netflix and with Apple Music, uh, which I stopped using because because it basically deleted all my iTunes and ported it to the cloud, is it gives far too much control to Apple. If they decide that, uh, likewise Spotify, half your you know half your library can disappear. You know, it gives far too much control there to into to, to intellectual property owners that way. Um, but this is not a new thing. Uh, back in the seventies, Alvin Toffler wrote a book called Future Shock, and and he predicted this. You know that he foresaw that a lot of current of physical assets at the time, like books, movies, would become basically weightless and become digital, and that people would prefer to rent short term or subscribe uh, rather than own. I still like owning books because I like books as objects, but I have quite a lot I have as dig- as ebooks. And something about a book says buy that book or buy that as an ebook. I'm never quite sure why I pick one as a physical book and one as an ebook. There must be some process in there that I, that, I, that I don't quite understand. I think as a as a writer, part of my problem is that a weightless product is con- is considered to be valueless as well. And it's not, um, you know, it gets into book piracy and all that, and the whole idea that that kind of information wants to be free. Information doesn't want anything. Information doesn't have wants. People want information to be free. <laughs> information has no wants. It's just a thing. Um, I do think that creators should be paid for for their work and for their effort. It was uh, a Dublin a Dublin hotel owner had a very small boutique hotel. Uh, this kind of made all the newspapers in the West because it was a good story. Um, and a social media influencer came and said, uh, give me a room in your hotel, give me dinner, give me that, and I will give you massive exposure to my thousands of followers. It will be great and grand. And the man basically told her to fuck off. <laughs> and she got very huffy about this as well. And he said, what is it you think you can give me? My hotel is full every single night. You can't, you know, you can't build, are you just going to build a new extension onto my hotel and fill it? No, they're not. There's nothing you can give me that I'm not getting already. So go away. <laughs> take your, you know, take your outrage somewhere else. Take your influence elsewhere. <laughs> it's, you know, exposure can only do so much. Um, I mean, for me, exposure is only good if somebody goes and buys a book at the end of it. But it is, a, it is interesting what you were saying about, about it does encourage people to create at home and it makes it so simple. Um, one of my lockdown hobbies is I downloaded a whole lot of electronic music software. And I can, I'm noodling away <laughs> making electronic music. So I'm, I'm the classic, I'm a classic middle-aged man with an unfinished album of electronic music in his attics. But that kind of thing, it, make, it makes it simple and it means you can share it. Yeah, um, I've, and I've lost my train of thought now. We all die.
Но это не точно. Well, uh, let me guide you back on, well, maybe not on the same rails, but well, something alongside what we're talking about. You mentioned that you deleted and you don't want to use, was that Spotify or Apple Music? I'm sorry. I mean, it was both, actually. So you refused to use the, uh, well, streaming service, music streaming services of uh, like giant IT corporations because you disliked uh, the way they... Their, their control policy. Yeah, yeah. But, well, it's actually their technology. They invented it. They have a right to control, to have full control over it. Is that so? Or, well, is it all right? Because we often take technologies and devices as granted, but they have actually, they have inventors. They have people who invented them. They have, they have people who patented it. They yeah. have people who are constantly working on it. I think what it was with, with the Apple thing, it was I was perfectly happy with iTunes as it was. And they basically, I wasn't consulted about the moving it online. And in a sense, a social contract exists between me and them. I pay them money. I have certain rights and expectations of it. When it went online to Apple, to Apple Music, it erased all the files on my computer. All the music files were removed. Uh, and we're basically, it's like a It's like ransomware, effectively. You know, <laughs> yeah, but you but you pay for it before it. Yeah. Haven't you read the license and user agreement? Hasn't it mentioned? That? No, it, it actually is there. It is there. No, it isn't. It isn't. There is there is like a slight thing between what you own and what you well. There was actually, actually the thing I wanted to add, the thing I wanted to ask you, because you've said it yourself about books, about movies, well, cinemas and libraries. Libraries have been with us since the ancient times, but with, with digital technology, the thing is, it's not there. And we get into like a philosophical dilemma because we can consider those ones and zeros, essentially, those high and low frequencies of electric current or whatever. We can consider them either as a physical-ish object and thus it can be owned it's the rights to ownership can be transferred etc or we consider it we can consider it to be information like pure information and you can't own it you can't copyright it and i think that all those those problems they stem from there because nowadays if you even if you buy a movie if you buy a film i'm sorry if you buy on the blu-ray there's those tiny tiny words written like in sixth or fifth i don't know size fonts yeah which say that you don't actually own it but you're just given the right to view it And that's the same thing with music, because mm -hmm. when you buy when you buy a CD or an album, well, you own it. You own a physical copy, although you do not own the rights. You do not own the contents. And with the digital media, those two are the same. Yeah, it's it's just that I um I, I always had a philosophical a philosophical objection to rent seeking. Um, I think it's unearned money rent seeking. Whether that is renting out houses, whether uh we have a housing crisis in these islands, and basically rents go up because rents can go up because people will pay whatever they have to keep a roof over their heads. Um, the The landlords have done nothing to deserve this, and I think, and I kind of, I kind of think information rent seeking as well is harmful as well. To to own something gives you a degree of control over it. Uh, to not own it makes you merely a consumer of it with no rights except to consume. And I think and. If there was some way of kind of redressing that balance um, to give, say, people on subscription services more rights, a lot of it though is is mindset. Because having said farewell to Apple and its and its and, <laughs> and its fascist regime, I'm quite happy with Spotify now because I think about the music on Spotify differently. It's not my music that I own; it's it's my collection of music. Um, so my thinking has changed over a few years over that. But it's still damn, damn annoying when you have something you like in your collection and it disappears because of a legal dispute somewhere or a rights issue or someone hasn't, or it's been pirated in the first place. 
I don't think I should be subject to those legal uh, issues. Sort that out amongst yourselves. I have expectations as a consumer. You know, you know, if, if I've got a consumer, if, if, if all I'm is to be a consumer, then I then I want to consume painlessly, and I want to consume seamlessly, and I want it, and I don't want any interruptions to the service. This podcast was created in partnership with the Geek Picnic Russian Science and Tech Festival. Yeah, and I've actually got a like a small follow up question for you, and then a bigger one regarding the all the legal status of it. Because like the small question is, the United Nations, I believe, somewhere in 2014, 2015, somewhere along those times, in the tens, they have uh, declared that uh, there is a human right to have internet access. Well, they've. I may be wrong here. They may have not declared it to be a universal human right, but they have certainly stated that this is an important part of uh, rights that humans are endowed with nowadays in the, in the modern world. And so the UN decided to adapt in this way. And you have spoken already about the legality, all those legal issues, and about the regulations, perhaps, about, about, well, you as a consumer, you have certain expectations and you must have certain rights, and therefore we must have certain legislation in place. So the small follow-up question is whether you consider an access to the internet, an access to technology in general, a right. Has it become a commodity nowadays? And the second one, the bigger one, is how should we Legally speaking, in terms of uh, governmental regulations, are we moving in the right directions now? Because we have GDPR, we have hate speech laws, we have uh, different uh, sorts of warrants for internet, for personal data and social media especially. To make things short, he's asking whether we should uh, treat everything we do online as in the same way that we treat everything we do, like in Meat World, although the online world is actually well, kind of different, really different. Yeah, and it is, and, and, and it is, qu- it is quantitatively and qualitatively different from from physical reality. Internet access is the right. I mean, I can see why they're arguing this because those places that don't have it are at such a disadvantage. I mean, I I never really use the word the third world because I think it's insulting to the the advancing countries. But I do think that there's kind of a you know that the third world world as a fractal fractal structure. If you go to any society, you will see a developing world in it, any country, a developing world, uh, sorry, a developed world, a developing world, and an underdeveloped world, all inside one country. So it's not just, you know, nations that need access to, to the internet, it's whole sections of society as well. Um, in this country, we still see it as a luxury, a thing that people don't need. Um, you get you get right big bigots complaining in the in the newspapers about you know ab- about people spending their, their unemployment money on the internet. No, you need it to uh, there, there are stuff you cannot access or cannot function as a member of society without it. It is as it, it is as essential as food and shelter in that way. Uh, so if those people can't function basically are discriminated against by lack of access to technology, then access access to technology should be a right as well, I think. And I forgot what the second question was. Uh, a quick reminder of the second question. Should we, should we treat, legally speaking, the digital things in the same way we treat real things? Or And are we going in the right direction, in your opinion, or maybe not? With the GDPR, with, well, with hate speech laws, with uh, different yeah. warrants being written solely on the basis of what's not real or is it i think a lot of it may be to do with maybe not to do with whether it's real or not but to do with reach and speed in that in the digital world it's the classic you know bad news goes around the world while good news is is tying its shoelaces uh stuff can move so far and so fast and people 
don't necessarily have the filters to judge what they hear. It's the whole thing of, of you know, a friend tells you something on, on social media. You don't want to tell your friend, that's shit. You've been listening to shit because, because they're your friend. Depends on what kind of friends you are, I suppose. Depends on the kind of shit they're listening to. <laughs> I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm in an amateur drama group. They're a big thing in Ireland, and we're all and um, we can't we can't rehearse. We can't we can't do any shows at the moment. So we're all on WhatsApp. Stuff flies around all the time. We, we do we do Zoom quizzes and Zoom parties. Somebody came out with some nonsense about this was an early lockdown um, urban legend um, that a doctor in China says if you gargle with salt water, it will kill off coronavirus and you'll be fine. And this went all around the group, and I, and I kind of said nonsense. I, I call bullshit on this, you know. You know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But what doctor in China? You know, I, because it came from somebody I know. I, you know, I, I was kind of hesitant to say that. You know, I'm sorry, this is nonsense. Um, it's misinformation can be passed on innocently, and you and you don't want to risk friendships by calling people. Um, you were saying, I mean, is the physical world moving towards the digital world, or the digital world towards the physical world? They are two. They are two different things, and I, I still don't think we've arrived at a kind of intellectual understanding of the differences and the different etiquettes or protocols for interfacing for interfacing them. Stuff that works in one world will, you know, will not necessarily work in another, and we're, and we're very slowly finding that out. I mean, it's only 30, 40 years old. It's still in its infancy. Prenatal state. <laughs> that, that's actually a good uh, run-up for the next question, maybe even a block of questions we have, about, you know, culture, cultural influences of technologies. Well, and the first one to start is, how does uh, internet and, well, social media affect cultures, like, on their own, not uh, integrating the cultures, I mean, but do they shift, do they change the cultures themselves, or do they actually form, like, a separate sub cultures a separate form of culture like um well you know there's been a rise of popularity of um in fiction in video fiction and in uh, book fiction uh of some sort of taking the culture and giving it a uh, digital uh, sci-fi spin and flur for example you know cyber slab there's been a um a cartoon trailer which has never been released yet well but nonetheless yeah which was about like something like ancient russia with churches and uh well and our Princess. yeah and bogatiers which are well our sort of medieval knights in russia but they were all like using grenades lasers flamethrowers yeah holograms and so on or what what you've written like india 2047 that's a better example i guess so do technologies give cultures a another flur, another spin, and well, change them, or is it like another form of culture which grows and develops in a parallel with the culture itself? Ooh, it's. I think it's a both and thing, not an either or. I, I mean, te technology will always change every culture it comes into contact with, but every culture uses technology in its own way. Um, in East Africa, everything went mobile long before there was a fully connected landline internet. Uh, China as well, it's all mobile. Um, it's. I was there last year and I couldn't buy anything. <laughs> the only thing I could pay for stuff was with cash or using uh, WePay on, on the phone and I couldn't get onto WePay. 
because I didn't recognize Western bank cards. <laughs> and, and, and so, I, so I, I literally had to ask people to buy things for me. <laughs> you know, it, it can open things up and shut things out at the same time. But, but to go back to what I was saying, I, I mean, culture is never a static thing. It changes all the time. Um, I always believe that if you're an art, a writer or an artist, your job is to leave the culture different in some way when you leave it, you know, from when, from, from when you entered it. Remixing stuff, uh, recasting casting classic you know classic stories with um i do love the i i do love the sound of the kind of the kind of high-tech armored medieval knight sounds sounds a lot of fun that's a very very digital age thing to do to take something and recast it you know it's pride and prejudice with zombies um that sort of thing um in uh, i was saying about being in this amateur drama group i've I've directed a couple of plays and uh, all male plays and done them with all women in them. I, I'm, I'm playing around with, with gender expectations. I think that feeds back into our culture and makes us more prone to change things and to try new things out and to kind of push new ideas. We're open to the possibility of changing established things more. Um, that comes from technology. Мы все умрем. Но это не точно. We've already talked about uh, how the lack of access, for example, to the internet can be a huge disadvantage for any culture, for any country. Well, for, for, I believe that applies to cultures too, as well. And uh, you've just said that it's instant and it's very easy. And with the rise of deep fakes, we've seen it all, I believe, now, the worst extent of it. But <laughs> still, the question of minorities and minority culture in that particular context, I think becomes more and more critical because at the same time, there's a huge platform, but it's open both ways. For example, your your example about China is both unique because they have that great Chinese firewall and it was still physical. You were there, you just couldn't pay. But in, in the digital world, in the digital aspects of our culture, what stops us from taking, I don't know, some small, unique, in its own way, Aboriginal, I don't know if that's the politically correct world, word, we'll cut it. It's a Russian podcast. Come yeah, on. <laughs> we're Russians, we can say that. Aboriginal culture of, say, Papua New Guinea, and just start making fun of it on 4chan, I don't know, or diminish, or, or those people, they can feel, because of the lack of access and uh, the economical reasons too, they can feel that they're subordinate, they can try to imitate the more popular, the more, let's say, Western culture, and they can lose their own flair. So is there a danger to minority cultures and to our human culture in general? Because there are very, very precious gems in it, and uh, how the technology can help us save it or maybe lose it. Talk about China briefly. I, I kind of got around the, the Great Firewall by getting a VPN. <laughs> and, I was, and I was talking to Chinese, you know, Chinese writers. They said, I've got a VPN. Said, We've all got VPNs. We get five of them. And you switch between them every week. You know, you, you keep it circling around. So, yes. Yeah, so, so when they close one down, you go on to the next one. And then the first one comes back up again. Because digital culture is a natural amplifier, it can certainly uh, show and demonstrate And I kind of and kind of represent minority cultures very fast and very comprehensively. But at the same time, it can also uh, close off entire cultures as well. Sometimes deliberately, like in China, and sometimes by itself because because of that bubble effect. Because that we have cultures that only you know that to preserve their culture, it works two ways. It, it can 
is things like Black Lives Matter, which you know, which black people are a minority in the United States, but but digital culture serves serves the whole move, movement brilliantly. Um, you mentioned 4chan. I mean, all, all you have to do is scroll down there, and you and you will see little worlds that nobody should ever go into, but there they are. You know, very specific niches, not necessarily open or accessible to anybody else. And it's how those two connect, and they can connect because somebody can be in some um, I don't know some kind of um, latex furry fetish group down on 4chan, but also be a social activist for feminism at the same time. They aren't necessarily exclusive. You know, it's it's it, it's being able to step back from the amplified message and see what's really being said here and what really needs to be done. You know, stop shouting at me and then I'll listen to what you have to say. I think I'd like to object to you on the topic of everything maybe bubbling up because of internet. Because China is not the best example in this case because China has always been a well, closed-in culture and is it has been cutting off any connections with the outer world for centuries before the internet. What I can see, well, uh, in history happening uh, is cultures merging with each other there has been like a great in all the Europe uh, between Europe and Russia even the classical English language has a lot of words that have French origins autumn beautiful well and the word orange doesn't come from from English originally and so on and so forth so what I'm trying to say is that cultures have been merging with each other throughout the whole history except for some some of them like China and Japan for example and what we are seeing nowadays and what most of cyberpunk authors predict is cultures merging on the global scale and becoming some one gigantic universal culture. I really liked uh, what Gibson has been describing in Euromancer series, corporate culture, uh, which was a mixture of American and Japanese approaches to yeah to corporate culture. And well, it, it was even in the words. So for example, the word salaryman, which was yeah a Japanese uh, pronunciation of the word salaryman. The Japanese lingo integrating into everyday English, well, it was American English, but nevertheless. So what I'm trying to say is the world has been trying to come a cultural singularity since the very beginning. Will the technologies and the internet in particular speed this process up? And if they will, is it for better or for, or for worse? I think um, certainly there seems to be a move towards homogeneity. And it's things like the kind of the, um, you mentioned the English language, you know, which in a sense is the language of the internet. It's a, it's a stupidly difficult language to learn. <laughs> its pronunciation makes no sense at all. Um, it's not particularly pretty to listen to either. But for a few historical reasons, it's become a dominant international language. Spanish is much better, much, much easier <laughs> Much, 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 much better back for international language and and much more widely spoken. But but uh, U.S. English yeah. is 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 the language of the internet. But as things come together, things break apart as well. Um, it's if you just take the if you just take the example of the English language, it's constantly fracturing at the edges into new forms and new languages. I, I mean, even inside the internet, there are memes. There is there, there, there was the briefly lived leet speak, and I kind of welcome that because I, li I like a bit of chaos and disorder and things. Uh, homogeneity is kind of boring, but it, it is it is daft things. It's the um, I, I kind of like kind of like little examples like France is the biggest buyer of McDonald's hamburgers outside the U.S. The French adore the McDonald's Big Mac apparently. They are, they are real McDonald's fans. Who'd have thought that? Um, 
I mean, I, I think um, I'm always I'm always slightly suspicious of, of, of kind of Gibson's homogeneity because he, if you read his later books, he's really into products and branding. Yeah, and yeah, that's good, and I, I, I can see what he's doing. But the thing is that corporate culture is far too simplistic and far too destructive, really, to, to be to be allowed to have too much control over human lives. And most products are pretty shit as well, actually. Um, Coca Cola is not a good product. Most clothing brands is just a T-shirt made in a sweatshop with you know, with a logo on it. I mean, it turns the whole world into a marketing strategy, but there are no new ideas. But, but once you get to there, there are no new ideas coming from anywhere else. This podcast was created in partnership with the Gig Picnic Russian Science and Tech Fest. This actually brings us to, I think, the biggest in terms of, well, book value <laughs> and total shares outstanding points of our conversation. And uh, that would be corporations, because we've we've already talked about how dissatisfying they can be in the modern world. And we've seen uh, both in works of science fiction and cyberpunk and in real life, how they influence our language, how they influence our lives with all those words like, like, like becoming the most popular filling word, word in English language. Mm -hmm. And uh, with us sharing everything with no understanding of real sharing and stuff. The corporations also use that amplification. And uh, the big companies now have the ultimate marketing platform, the ultimate consumer market. And they have so much power nowadays that we try to strangle them with the government. But <laughs> we really don't, we don't understand how technology works. And they don't either. And I believe... Well, This, this is a great question to start. Do you, do you believe that corporations do understand it and in fact some sort of a big evil monster? Or are they in fact just going with the flow? They see an opportunity and grab it and then we get, then we get what, we, what we deserve? I don't know. Economically opportunistic. Well, by classic definition of capitalism, they need to be economically opportunistic. You know, I, I, mean, I mean, the perfect corporation is one that doesn't have any one product. It's just there to make profit and it can change from product to product. You know where it sees a proper opportunity, but I do think you're right. I mean, I do think that a lot of the like, tech companies they had a vague idea of what they were doing, but they, and they just put it out there to see what would happen. And now they are uh, the richest and most powerful corporations on the planet. Um, they can't influence for good. Um, if they switched all their server farms over to renewable energy, that would send that was a very clear signal to putting uh, fossil fuel industries. That would be good. Um, I don't think they quite know what they're doing. Um, and also, they have the worst people as their CEOs. Oh, God, like, like Mark Zuckerberg is, or even Elon Musk. <laughs> Speaking of faces, who built his for him? I, I mean, uh, well, it's only logical for IT corporation to be controlled by a robot. Yeah, well, that's it exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of the tech entrepreneurs, you know, you, you know, used to go to Burning Man, you know, and they still think they are that person, you know, that the kind of the kind of freaky countercultural people, and they're not. They're building a rocket fleet, for God's sake. You know, I mean, this is not Burning Man. This is a James Bond villain. <laughs> is, is what it is, and it's it's tax and oversight. Um, we still don't know how to get them to pay the tax they owe properly. Um, and even less do we know how to properly regulate what kind of entities are they? Are they communications companies? Are they publishing companies? Are they something else? And if there's something else, then we need to legislate for that and get a totally new form of, of law that applies to these companies. But that needs to be cleared up. Speaking about the, the relationship between governments and uh, giant, gigantic corporations, 
regulations and, well, the regulations of the latter, and there has been for quite a long time, a mutual antitrust, sort of. Uh, because, well, let's take a Russian example. There's, well, there's this messenger app called Telegram, uh, created by, well, a Russian IT guy, uh, IT genius, uh, Pavel Durov. And the Russian government has uh, wanted for quite a long time to get access to Telegram, while Durov and uh, some other people say that, uh, well, it's actually illegal for the government to have a, such a control over the app and messaging because, well, you know, a digital key doesn't open just one door and let you read like one conversation. It, it's a skeleton key. It lets you read all of the things people message one another. And that's the rudest intrusion into, well, people's personal space and privacy. Where's the where's the golden middle? Where should the governmental control and influence on... Uh, influence? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sorry. Where should the yeah, governmental control and influence... Uh, over the technologies and uh, everyday digital life stop. Yeah, the example you use is interesting because that sounds more like security than legislation. They're kind of interconnected. They were legislating for those keys as if, for example, if you're in your home and, uh, well, you've been murdered or manslaughtered, then the police can legally enter your private property in most of the countries, I believe, <laughs> when, there, when there's proper cause and due cause. But in the internet... They may be sure that the, these are the messages from terrorists, for example. Yeah. These are the messages from a murderer confessing, but they can't get access and they want that access. And they legislate in a way that you give us access now or we block you. Now, we've heard that. We've seen that in China. Uh, yeah, I mean, that does sound like an argument from security rather than an argument from legislation. And also it's preemptive rather than kind of, um, I, I mean, I mean, I think what legislation there is, you can't stop it going up in the first place. You know, some bit of hate speech or some kind of um, staggering, <laughs> staggering racist video thing. You can't stop it going up there, but you can get rid of it quickly. You know, it reacts rather than preempts. Anything that gives governments a chance to preempt what people might do, I think, is dangerous. Stuff that allows them to afterwards take it down and then the, and then find the company and they'll say, okay, we're not going to do this kind of thing again. Where they police themselves, I think, is important. But to do it preemptively, to uh, you know, to stop it going up in the first place, I think, is on the road to tyranny. So, yep. So, I so I think legislation that works quickly effectively and comprehensively after the fact uh, that punishes the wrongdoers and gives them an incentive not to do it again, a strong incentive not to do it again, would be the way to go. Stuff that happening in the first place, because people respond to incentives. Going deeper into this question uh, about governmental corporal relationships, we've actually noticed something, well, we believe we noticed it happening, is governments becoming corporation-like especially in Russian, can be noticed, for example, government and governmental corporations controlling the biggest, uh, well, and the most like juicy segments of, uh, of well, of business, for example, it's uh, and of, of technologies as well. It's, uh, well, the Roscosmos. The biggest bank in Russia is also a governmental. Well, everything, public infrastructure, for example. The government, which was built to serve, now... sees those big corporations and thinks, well, I can do the same thing, but better, and... I can enforce my own rules and it starts to provide a service. Instead of serving. Instead of serving the citizens. And do you believe that's happening in the world? Yeah, it's one of the myths. I mean, I mean, in, in Britain this happened. You know, everything was privatized because there's a belief that private corporations are always more efficient and respond to the forces of the market. And the thing is, they don't. 
they are not more efficient. I, be, I believe I remember a Fry and Laurie sketch about uh, police being privatized. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's going to happen at some point. You know, um, Certainly in the UK, lots of stuff is put out to private security companies. Uh, during the 2012 Olympics, the G4S security, who are a laughing stock in Britain, they got the private tender to provide security to the Olympics. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it because they were a useless, useless private corporation. So the army did it instead. And the army were very good because that's their job to do that. And it's, it's kind of the enduring myth that corporations are somehow more efficient uh, leaner, meaner, you know, su- you know, subject to market forces. No, they're not. Um, no company wants to be subject to market forces. Every company, if you could get away with it, would be a monopoly. You know, what's its interest in being subject to competition? Uh, competition is destructive to corporations. No, during the COVID-19 crisis, if you've been following anything about uh, UK politics, we have our fabulously incompetent Prime Minister Boris Johnson, cuddly teddy bear, and his evil dark overlord advisor, Dominic Cummings, we're doing COVID-19 testing and all the contracts have gone to private corporations who have given money to the Conservative Party without competition and without tender. And they can't do it. They're, they are incompetent at it. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's like I'm saying, it's, it's the whole myth of capitalism that corporations are, are good and efficient. No, they're not. They're only as good as they need to be inside their own little ecological niche. Outside that, they may, you know, they could be bulldozed over by the real world. It's the, uh, assumption that the, it's the assumption that if you're good at one thing, you'll be good at something else. And the fact is, you're not. <laughs> it's like Trump imagines that running the United States. He's a CEO of a wretched little company that's been bankrupt three times. He's not even a very good CEO. Uh, Jeff Bezos could, could sweep him away tomorrow if he, if he so desired. But he imagines that if you're a CEO of a tatty little company, a hotel chain, and casino chain, that if, if you're CEO of that, you can run America. No, you can't. Do your hotels have nuclear weapons? No, they do not. You know, do they have their own? Do they have police forces? Do they have health systems? Do they have infrastructure and education to look after? No, they do not. And you cannot treat a country as a corporation. You need, it's like you say, yes, you need people who have the idea of serving rather than providing services. You're absolutely right in that. Мы все умрем. Но это не точно. You know, that's not what most uh, cyberpunk authors think and say, well, in their in their fiction, because maybe you cannot treat a country like a company, but you might actually come to treating a company like a country because, mo- well, many of the cyberpunk and sci-fi authors think of companies gaining so much economical power, it, al- it almost, and then, well, not almost, but actually becomes political, that power. And, well, up to those companies gaining their own uh, uh, rule over their own territory, becoming extraterritorial, sometimes to some extent extraterrestrial and well people having their corporate citizenship and well corporate cash and well we've actually seen corporations and business having a rule over politics for quite a long time no that lob all that lobbyism there have been a lot of thoughts over corporations like overrunning governments and be- and governments becoming subdued to them like so it's not like the corporation can run a country we have established your point of view that they can't and they will inevitably fail but it's the other way around the corporation subduing us with power with force if necessary with private armies and all of us 
instead of being citizens, becoming workers, becoming... Salarymen. <laughs> yeah, sal salarymen. Do you believe that's possible? Yeah. For you answer that question, I uh, I would like to add something that there's not a necessity to have a private army to subdue us all, but there uh, may be either kinds of influences to take control over more aspects of our lives. For example, you know, there are a lot of digital banks that also provide some other services like food delivery, for example, or video streaming or... Orwellian future versus... Uh, Huxley, and I don't know the proper yeah. adjective. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, it's interesting about you're saying about corporations with their own money because Facebook tried to launch its own digital currency a while back, and and that failed. Well, it it, it didn't work the way they the way they wanted them to. But that is exactly what you're saying. You know, it's corporations taking the rights and responsibilities of nation states on onto themselves. Um, in a sense, Bitcoin and all the, what, what do you call them? Um, Cryptocurrency. Yes, yeah, like, uh, blockchain currencies. You know, they, I mean, they are basically private currencies mm -hmm. um, outside the control of national banks. The entropy in the system is incredible. Um, as more and more energy gets used to mine more and more Bitcoin as the blockchain calculations get longer and longer, significant parts of the world's energy budget are just basically, basically they're creating useless value, doing useless work in calculating blockchain. Corporations used to be sort of subject to force, you know, to the, you know, to the business cycle of, um, of, you know, you know, kind of creation, early start, maturity, and then they kind of fall apart, and, and then death at the end, and they fall apart. So when you comes along and feeds off the corpse of its predecessor, but I think corporations now nowadays do not want that cycle to happen. They will do anything they can to exist forever and enjoy a monopoly position. Do you believe it's possible, naturally, that they they'll succeed in their efforts? It's possible. It's possible. Um, I'm a member of a thing called the Long Now Foundation which you might have heard of. Um, it's there to basically promote long-term thinking. Humans are very bad at long-term thinking. We can we can imagine seven million years in the past, but we can't imagine seven million years in the future. We can't even imagine 700 years in the future, to be honest. But the Long Now Foundation is there to encourage long-term thinking. They're building a device called the Clock of the Long Now. It's a 10,000-year clock that ticks once a year chimes once a century and basically will run for 10,000 years inside this mountain somewhere. Um, and I think I think a lot of the corporations you're talking about would like to become these long, um, these kind of long corporations, uh, like a really long institution was the Catholic Church, which has kind of <laughs> existed for, yeah, say 1,500 years, uh, pretty much unchanged. But I think we're kind of entering, you know, with the concentration of wealth and technology and corporations that feel they should exist for ever that you know that we may be seeing the arrival of big companies you know that will last maybe eight hundred thousand years if anyone's doing long-term thinking it's corporations not states and not and certainly not individuals from what i heard and from what i um remembered from our conversation and well the what i deduced from <laughs> from what you've said is that even if you maybe try to object it, we're actually coming closer to what the pillars of cyberpunk genre are. Overwhelming technologies and their influence our lives. The giant corporations which control those technologies gain, gaining even bigger influence on our lives that, and even becoming like governmental-like. And cultures changing forever, maybe merging, but never 
racing to to the brink of extinction. If it was to have one sign-off message about cyberpunk, it would be, yeah, the I mean, the cyber's already there, but we just need to remember the punk. Less cyber, <laughs> be more punk. That will save us. I, I actually like it because that's what we actually began with. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't make it to tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, which is actually perfect, I would like to end this conversation and this podcast. Thank you very much, Mr. McDonald. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, a pleasure to speak with you. It was, a, yeah, it was like a conversation. Actually, we were bouncing ideas around there, <laughs> big stuff. Thank you very much. This was the podcast. We're all gonna die, but that's not certain. <laughs> Мы все умрем. Но это не точно.